Hello, good morning everyone. A particular welcome to you if you're new around and if you're visiting us over the summer, it's great to have you here. Uh, my name is Rich, I'm going to be leading us through this next part uh, of our time together. And what that's going to look like is that we're going to be continuing a series that we've been in uh, over the summer, exploring a number of different stories from throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and the idea of the series is that if you're kind of here for a one-off, um, or you're kind of here in between holidays and being away and different kind of things, um, you'll find kind of a, a whole and complete message that will hopefully do you good. Um, but at the same time, if you're kind of around for every week in the summer, uh, and you know, well done to you if that's you, and you, we love having you here, um, you'll also find some threads that run through each of the different stories that we're going to look at, which hopefully um, lead us to one particular place, uh, and that place is Jesus. Um, actually, all of the stories we're looking at, um, all of the threads in the Old Testament are speaking about Jesus. They're leading us towards Jesus, the Jesus we've been worshipping so far today. Uh, and uh, today, the story we're going to be looking at is the story of Jonah. Um, who here, to start with, is familiar with the story of Jonah? Kind of a rough show, yeah? Great. I think that's a really big problem. Um, <laughs> so most of us, I think, have an idea in our heads of what the story of Jonah is all about, and I think most of those ideas, and I know this is certainly true for me, have come from maybe growing up around church or around Christianity, uh, and they, they major in on one kind of particular part of the story, um, and that's the bit about Jonah and the whale. whale. But what I hope we're going to go on to find as we unpack the story and we kind of talk through and look at the whole breadth of it is that the whale, uh, or the fish, um, is actually a very, very small part of the story, and yet it looms kind of quite large over it, almost like this very um, small fish or small whale up here kind of looms large uh, over us today. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm kind of hoping that as we, we go through it together, as we unpack it, and we'll find out that actually the story of Jonah is, is not so much about a whale, it's actually much more about a mirror. And the mirror of the story of Jonah is a mirror for us to hold up to ourselves, Actually, the book is written in a really interesting way, in a really interesting and unique style amongst the Bible, which causes us to face up to some things in our own lives which are not kind of a happy kid's story about a bloke who has a nice day out on the sea and kind of falls overboard and gets saved by a whale, but actually forces us to come face to face with some things in our own lives that we're maybe not all that happy about, our own pride and our own hard-heartedness even our own kind of nationalism and bigotry at times. It's a kind of deeply personal and deeply challenging and often at quite times dark story. And the style is really unique in the Bible. It's based on a historical person. So we find Jonah in one other place in the Bible, in the book of Two Kings. But the story is written as a kind of satirical comedy. And so it, what it does is it, it takes characters that we know, it takes Jonah, a man that we know, a prophet, someone who um, speaks the word of God. Uh, it takes the Ninevites, who we know uh, in the Old Testament are kind of Israel's enemies. They're kind of the Assyrian Empire. They're the bad guys in the story. It takes these characters and these places and these contexts that would be familiar to us if we were kind of reading this story as an ancient Israelite. And they kind of take everything within the story to the extreme. It exaggerates the characteristics of all of the people within it, it exaggerates the story itself and the situations to 
make us laugh, like satire does, like comedy does, but also to reflect that laughter back on ourselves, to help us critique our own culture and our own beliefs and our own prejudices. The story of Jonah functions kind of like a sketch from a Spitting Image or Mitchell and Webb or the MASH report, depending on your kind of era. Um, and we find right throughout the story that everything in the story of Jonah is great. Kind of the word great, if you're reading through it, it pops up again and again and again, over 15 times. Everything is taken to the extreme. And the reason for that, we find, is right at the very end. It's the punchline. It's the last line of the book. And that's really important for us to understand the type of literature we're reading, and because the Bible is composed of all kinds of different types of literature. And all of them tell us about God in different ways. There's poetry and history, there's parable and songs, there's kind of prophetic visions, and there's satirical comedy. And that's a really kind of unusual thing for us to think to find in the Bible, but we should expect, kind of knowing a little bit about the context of how this book is written and put together, to find within the story of Jonah comedy and irony and absurdity. And the problem for us, kind of reading it all these years later as kind of 21st century Westerners, is that we can kind of miss the elements of the story that are supposed to be funny, that are supposed to be humorous, that are supposed to be kind of reflecting back on the society that the book originally was talking to. And we kind of get hung up on questions like, so did it all really happen exactly like this? But that's not really the point of what the book of Jonah is trying to tell us. The point of the book of Jonah is what it's trying to tell us about the character of God. And that's what I hope we're going to unpack together. Often the commentators on the church throughout history have got so hung up on whether this could happen, whether the bit about the fish could actually happen, that they've missed kind of the point of what the amazing work that God is doing in and through this story. And, you know, we've been singing this morning about a much greater miracle. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, of course he can do the thing with the fish as well. What God wants to speak to us is far deeper, far more meaningful than that. And so we're going to dive into it um, today. And with the hopefully, I'm going to use a couple of props and different points throughout to help us kind of pick up on points throughout the story that if we were reading it as an original Hebrew, we might kind of laugh at or we might find kind of satirical comedy. And to help us um, with that, I've got, got this and this kind of well-known prop that you might have. Um, if you're kind of uh, in a, you know, a studio audience or something like that, you're watching a sketch show. And so the different words, I'm going to hold this up. Um, we're going to hear a bit of a laughter track as well, kind of encouragement. Um, and that would be kind of a, a trigger to us to think, oh, actually, what's God saying in this moment that we're kind of maybe not quite getting uh, from our context? And so I'm going to kind of read us through the story. I'm not going to take it verse by verse, but I'll dip into the text at different points. And so I'd encourage you, if you do have a Bible with you, get it open to Jonah. Jonah's in the uh, Old Testament. It's kind of buried away in the, kind of the midst of the minor prophets. It might take you a little bit of time to find it, just after Obadiah and uh, just before Micah, if you know where those are. Yeah. Great, okay, uh, and if not, it's only four chapters long, I think. Try and find it at some point this week. Have a read through it um, for yourself. And so I want to start off like this. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. <laughs> okay, that's the first laughter moment. It's the kind of verse that we see all the time in the Bible, and often we kind of skip it over because we think, Great, it's just a little bit of background information. 
But actually, uh, if you're familiar with the story, you know that this is kind of a, a ludicrous opening. And so often in the Bible, the names of the characters within it have such a deep meaning that we don't always get when it's just translated into names for us. And so Jonah and Amittai, Jonah means dove. Okay, and doves in the Bible are all about innocence and purity and holiness, kind of righteousness before God. And Amittai means faithfulness. Okay, it's a word that kind of reflects the, the vast commitment of one person to another. And so we're introduced to this character, Jonah, who is introduced to us as Jonah, the dove, the righteous, holy, pure one, son of faithfulness, one who embodies the faithful characteristics of his father. And that's meant to make us laugh. Because as soon as we get into the story, as soon as we are familiar at all in any way with the story of Jonah, what we'll find is that Jonah is the least like those characteristics of anyone that we encounter in the story. He is the least righteous person. He is the most hard-hearted, hatred-filled, bitter person, ultimately faithless character in the whole book. And so that's how it starts. And God speaks to Jonah, and he speaks, and he tells him to go and preach against the city of Nineveh because of its wickedness. And Nineveh uh, is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. These are uh, Israel's bitter enemies in the Old Testament. This is a, a brutal regime, a really, really horrible bunch of people. They're a barbaric empire. One of the things um, they would do was when they conquered a city or somewhere, they would skin the leaders of that people alive and put them on display in front of the conquered city. They're a horrible, horrible bunch of people. God telling Jonah to go and preach against the wickedness of these people is kind of like telling someone to parachute into Berlin in 1941 and preach against the wickedness of the Nazi regime. And so Jonah does something that, you know, is possibly quite understandable with all that context in mind. He runs away. He flees. And at this point, we're not told his motive. We're not told why Jonah takes this flight away. Perhaps if we're reading it for the first time, we might think it's fear. That's kind of the logical response, that Jonah is afraid of these people and what they might do to him if he goes and preaches against them. And so he flees to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish um, is about as far west as you can get in the ancient world. So uh, from where Jonah is in Jerusalem, uh, he's supposed to be going to Nineveh, which is kind of almost due east. Instead, he goes to Tarshish, which is almost due west. It's kind of around the area of like the Straits of Gibraltar, that kind of space. So he flees to kind of the only point where beyond that is almost nothing. You know, it's the ends of the earth. There's the kind of the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. That's all there is beyond. And he hitches a ride with some sailors. But God pursues him. He runs after him, and a great storm springs up. And now, if we were watching kind of a Hollywood adaption of this, if we were imagining what it would be like to think there's a hero in this story and a storm has sprung up, what would we expect to find Jonah doing? We might expect to find him there on deck, kind of rope in hand, as the waves are crashing and, and the wind is, is howling and the rain is pouring down and he's striding across deck and he's fighting to stop the ship breaking up. Maybe he's kind of shirtless and, and ripped. He's played by, I don't know, Chris Hemsworth or somewhere like that. 
What do we find Jonah doing? Jonah's asleep. Jonah's asleep at the bottom of the boat. And who, who are the heroes? Who are the ones trying to protect the ship? They're the sailors. They're the pagans, the kind of the random assortment of people, not inside God's people, who are just going about their lives. They're the ones putting in all of the hard work instead. But what they notice immediately about this storm is that there's something different. They spot that, that this is a, a divinely inspired moment. There's something supernatural going on in this storm, that, that God is, is using this storm in some way to do something, to speak some kind of truth. And so they try praying to any God they can think of. Okay? They are polytheists. They, they believe in all kinds of different gods. And so when that's your worldview, what you do when something's happening that you're recognizing is divinely inspired is that you pray to whatever God you can think of in the hope that one of them might listen and have mercy on you. And so they try that, but it's no good. They try throwing their cargo overboard. This is their livelihood, their life's work overboard to try and rescue the ship to make it light enough to escape the storm. It's no good. Jonah's still asleep. Eventually, they kind of cast lot. It's an ancient way of, of kind of working out truth. And they find that the fault... The cause of this storm is with Jonah. And so what they do is they wake him up and they question him. And they say to him in verse 8, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah replies, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. <laughs> nope. Jonah has declared that he worships a God who has complete and utter control and authority over the sea. And he is running away from this God on a boat. What is he doing? The God of heaven, a God of all creation. And he's trying to escape from him on a boat. It shows up Jonah's character. And the, the pagan sailors, the ones who don't believe in God at all, they immediately spot his hypocrisy. They call him out on it right away. What he's spoken there, that's not a true statement of faith. That's just kind of religious platitudes that he's spewed out almost by default. And they don't match up to his actions at all. He claims to worship this God who's in charge of all creation and he's running away. He's running away on a boat of all things, the God who's in charge of the sea. This is a mirror moment for us. How often is that us? How often do what I say, the things that I speak out that I believe, that I say I believe, how often do they match up with the way that I'm living and what I'm actually doing? How often in the history of the church has it been those on the outside calling out the hypocrisy of God's people? That's a challenging word for us. It's vital that as we're living our lives, as we're proclaiming this truth, and I know this is true for me, I, I feel it, how often do I come to church on Sunday and I say all these things, I believe, I sing these songs, I give myself in worship to God, and yet there are different parts of my life which 
I've not surrendered to God, in which I'm still living, not as if he is the God of heaven, the Lord of all creation. It's a challenging moment for us. And what we see in the story is something quite surprising. It's that the, the right response to the calling out of this hypocrisy comes not from Jonah, not from the man of God. It comes from these pagan sailors, the people who don't know God at all. They're terrified. They're terrified. Jonah's hypocrisy has put them all in danger. And so they ask him what to do. And Jonah replies with yet more selfishness. He, he tells them to throw him overboard. And it seems kind of on the first glance, maybe like a noble sacrifice. But it's just another way for him to escape. It's just another way for him to try and get away from what he's been called to. And he's doing it in an even worse way. He's doing it by trying to put his blood on the hands of these innocent sailors. It's more kind of comic irony. The innocent pagans, the guilty man of God, the immoral prophet, the moral people who don't even know God. In fact, they don't want to do what Jonah says. They try and row back to shore. They try everything else. And eventually, they've got no choice but to throw him overboard, crying out to God, even as they do, for mercy, that he would forgive them for this thing that they are being forced to do. And in fact, that's the first prayer to God we find in the book of Jonah. It comes not from the man of God, not from the prophet, the one who God has spoken his word to, comes from a bunch of people who don't even know him. And they respond by worshipping God and making vows to him. They can see something of the magnitude of what he's done. And Jonah goes down into the ocean and is swallowed by a large fish. And uh, the fish, as I mentioned earlier, has, has kind of become this thing which seemed to symbolize the whole story. But the reality is, in the story itself, it's just in a couple of short sentences. We don't get any description of what the fish is like, and yet somehow it's managed to find its way onto the front cover of every Jonah book kind of ever produced. Kind of whale actors, if there are such a thing, are kind of stealing a living off the book of Jonah and, you know, Pinocchio and Moby Dick and maybe a couple of other things. But really, it's a very, very small part of the story. And what it represents is Jonah's final going down. And so if you work your way through this first chapter of Jonah, what we find is that Jonah is constantly going down. He's going down and down and down. Okay, in verse 3, he goes down to Joppa from where he is. He goes down there. He then goes down into a ship. When he's within the ship, he goes down into the depths of the ship. Even from there, he's then cast down into the ocean and from there down into the stomach of the fish. It's, it's like the text is telling us through all this repetition that, that Jonah's life is, is falling apart one bit after another. It's going down and down and down and down until finally he hits rock bottom. He ends up in the stomach of this fish. And that should be, by all accounts, the end of the story. We're supposed to expect here, I think, Jonah's death, that that's it. But it's not. God turns this instrument of death 
into a vehicle of life for Jonah. And in that place, Jonah meets God. He meets him. Stripped of everything else in his life. Everything else in his life has fallen apart. He's been taken down and down and down by the weight of his own decisions. The restlessness of his own heart. He's stripped of everything else. And finally, it's only in that place that Jonah can see the pursuing God. The God who has been running after him every day of his life. The God who has never given up on him. The God who has never stopped searching for him. The God we were singing about earlier this morning. No shadow he won't light up. No mountain he won't climb up to run after Jonah. This is the God who has been after Jonah's best for the whole of his life. The one he's tried to flee. And when he's there, at his lowest point, at rock bottom in the belly of the fish, he finally sees it. He finally sees that God is a God of goodness who has always been after him for his best. And he composes this kind of epic poem. And that's what we find in, in chapter two. Almost the entirety of the chapter is, is Jonah's prayer to God. It's this kind of amazing, intricate poem that he composes. Because, you know, what else are you going to do when you're in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? But compose this amazing, intricate poem. What I think is really fascinating about the poem is that even in this place of deepest darkness... He sees that God is with him. He knows that God is listening to him. How often is that kind of the opposite of our reaction? When we find ourselves hitting rock bottom, that's the point where we sometimes can think, oh, God can't hear me here. God doesn't know me here. Now, Jonah gives us a model to see that in that place, more than almost than anywhere else, God is so with us. He knows the truth of, of Psalm 139. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Jonah is making his bed in the very depths of the depths of the depths. And still he knows that God is there. And that's a, a message that comes through again and again in the Psalms and the prophets, that when the consequences of our brokenness and our, our sin and our messed up ways of living, both the things that we have done, the decisions that we have made, like Jonah, the things that other people have done to us and put on us, and the things that just happen and we can't really understand or see a reason why, even in those places, God is very, very near when we reach out to him. He's there with love. He's there with restoration. It's another mirror moment for us. When Jonah's been swallowed up, when everything in his life has been taken over, he responds this way. How do we respond? You know, I... I know there are people in this room at this moment who, who feel like you're in that place. You feel like you've been swallowed up by everything. 
Maybe if you're not going through it right now, you've known it in the past, or you've got a fear of it in the future. Encouragement from the story of Jonah is that that place, even that place, especially that place, God wants to meet you. He wants to do a unique work in you in that place. He hasn't caused what's happened to Jonah, but he's so going to use that moment to reveal himself. He's so going to use that moment to teach him something that he could never have seen otherwise. It's a deep, deep truth. It's not always a comfortable truth. In fact, it's often a deeply uncomfortable place to be in. But God is so going to use it. God is not a genie in a lamp whistling us out of the dark places. But he's the one who is there with us in the midst of them. So Jonah has this amazing revelation and he emerges at last after composing this intricate, amazing, epic poem. And verse 10 of chapter 2, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. (laughs) Vomit is funny even in ancient Israel, okay? (laughs) The the kind of the comic contrast of this um, amazingly intricate, precise, detailed poem, it draws on all these kind of psalms and everything else, uh, and no, God's response, whale vomit, that's it. But what we've seen is that this instrument of death, what's supposed to be this moment of Jonah's death becomes this moment of life and transformation for him. And he emerges ready to hear and respond. And so this time, when the word of the Lord comes to him again and says, this time again, go to Nineveh, preach against its wickedness, he responds. He goes. He does as God asks. And we're told that Nineveh is an amazing city. It's again a very large city, a massive city that in fact it would take three days to walk through it. Okay. Doesn't sound very funny on the surface, does it? <laughs> three days. Basically, the thing with Nineveh is there's no such city in the ancient world that was big enough that it took you three days to walk through. Maybe if you were walking like this, kind of tiny little steps at a time, you might have a chance of maybe stretching it out for three days. So why has the author told us that it's this enormous? The answer is, he's cluing us back in. He's telling us what kind of story it is that he's telling. He's saying to us, everything in this story is enormous and massive and bigger than you could possibly imagine. The city is enormous. The storm was enormous. It's another moment kind of cluing us in to the type of story that it is. It's saying to us that if what is about to happen can happen even to Nineveh, this enormous city, bigger than anything you could possibly imagine, it can happen to anyone. And so Jonah goes, and he goes into this city, and he preaches as he's been told. And he says to the people, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. In Hebrew, it's only five words, five words long. It is, without doubt, a terrible, terrible sermon. What is missing in that sermon? What's missing in there? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
almost everything is missing from that. <laughs> there is no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong. There's no mention of what they're supposed to do to put that right. There's no mention of who might overthrow them. And worst of all, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of God at all. It's almost as if Jonah has gone and he's preached this sermon, which has done kind of the absolute bare minimum of what he's supposed to do. He's had a revelation of something of God's character and mercy, but he's still blinded by his prejudice against the Ninevites, by his fear of them, by his knowledge that they are Israel's enemies. He needs to stay away from them. And so he preaches this terrible, terrible message. And somehow it works. Nineveh turns to God. They repent. They're overturned. They're overthrown in a different way. And that word there, uh, overthrown, in Hebrew, it has two meanings. One can be kind of conquered, um, like a, an ancient army taking over a city. And the other way is to kind of turn something over, you know, like turning over a new leaf. And they kind of, they changed and transformed upside down. And Jonah's preaching about them, about the first meaning. But what happens is the opposite of what he expects. It's the second. They receive his message and they respond to it. It's another ludicrous kind of turn of events. Every character in the story, remember, is, is an exaggerated stereotype of themselves, but they act in a way that's almost the opposite to expectations. The pagan evil empire repents. Everyone in the city, from the greatest to the least, and even all of the animals put on sackcloth, this kind of symbolic um, form of kind of humbling yourself, and even the king, even the king, sits down in the ashes. This amazing, enormous city, the heart of a brutal and barbaric empire, receives this terrible message, and they turn to God. They turn to God. And Jonah is absolutely furious about this. That's not what he wanted. That's not what he was aiming for. He storms out of the city. He finds a place to sit up on a hill, and he looks back at the city of Nineveh. Maybe he's, he's hoping they're going to change their minds. They're going to go back to their own ways, and maybe they'll be destroyed and overthrown properly this time. And finally, at last, in that place, in that moment, he reveals his motivations for running away, first of all. It wasn't fear of the Ninevites. Jonah wasn't afraid of them. He was afraid of the wideness of God's mercy. He takes God's revelation of himself from the book of Exodus, that, that God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He stews there, in his own anger. And he cries out words very similar to the words that we heard Elijah speaking in Adrian's message a few weeks ago. That he's so angry, he wishes he could die. He can't bear to live in a world where this God reigns, this God of such mercy. He can't bear to live with a God who would show this kind of mercy to this kind of people. It's another 
mirror moment for us. It's easy for us, I think, sometimes to say, yeah, God's God of mercy, God of grace, great, good news. It's much, much harder when we find ourselves in situations where people have wronged us and hurt us, people who are the most evil and hatred-filled you could imagine. And God is saying, I would have mercy even on them if they turn and repent. That's a, that's a hard message. That's a hard message to hear. It makes us put ourselves in the story and think, how would I respond if I was in that situation? How would I respond if God spoke that to me? You know, sometimes on the news, we hear these amazing stories of, of people who um, have, have lost relatives who've been murdered or something, and, and um, the parents of those who, who've died are able to offer forgiveness to the culprits. And it cuts us to the core because it's like, I don't know how I would respond in that situation. God's mercy It's really hard for us to understand sometimes. And that's what Jonah's feeling. That's what he's feeling at that moment in his anger. And God speaks again and he asks him, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah sits in silence, doesn't respond. And so God uses this another amazing way of reaching out to Jonah. This plant grows up overnight over Jonah. He sat out um, kind of on the hilltop, the scorching wind and the rain and everything's there. The sun is beating down on him and a plant grows over him to provide shade from the sun. And Jonah is thrilled about this plant. And the next day, a worm comes and eats the plant. And Jonah despairs again. It's at the end of all things again. He replies that he's, he's so angry about the plant dying, that he could die once again. And that's the last that we hear of Jonah. The final sentence in the book is God's response. It's not Jonah's response. This is what God says. You've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern, same word, for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And that's it. Story ends just like that. It's another slightly odd rebuke for Jonah. God is saying, you cared about this plant. You loved it so much that when it, it died, you wanted to die, even though it was only there for a day and then you lost it. Shouldn't I have concern for this city, this enormous city, this huge city, where people don't know what they're doing? They are lost. They are caught up in a broken system. They're not even part of the covenant people of God. Yet even them, they are bearing God's image. They are made in his likeness. They're revealing something of him. Shouldn't God also have concern for them? 
And it's not only them, but it's the whole system. So that little kind of reference right at the end, and also many animals, it's the last line of my version in the NIV. It's kind of a, a really weird way to end it almost for us. But in the ancient world, the animals of a city are the economy of the city. They are the lifeblood of the city. From the, the poorest to the richest, life depends on the animals. God is saying, shouldn't I have concern, not just for the individuals within the city, but for the city itself? It's what we talk about when we, we talk about God colors and God flavors, bringing salt and light. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not plucking individuals out to take them to a disembodied heaven. It's about God's project of new creation, which is being birthed, even here, even now, that through the resurrection of Jesus, new life has come. There is a rising up from the grave that we are invited to walk into, that we're invited to live out now, that brings transformation, not just in our lives, but for those around us, for the whole system, for the whole city. And we're not told Jonah's response. Why? Because it's not the point. The point is not how Jonah responds in the end. The point is the mirror. The story is asking us to think deeply about mercy and justice, about how we would feel if we were Jonah, because we are. I am Jonah. I run from God. I'm selfish. I'm hypocritical. I'm blind to my own prejudice. And the systems that have put me uh, as a white man in the West in a place of power over others. I despair. I find myself at rock bottom. I'm angry at God because he doesn't line up with what I think he should be. I'm Jonah. Can you see yourself in Jonah? In any of the different parts of his life and the different contexts he finds himself in? The story is an invitation to deeply consider all of these things. It's leading us to see ourselves in Jonah and to hear God's question to us. How do we feel about this? Because who is the hero of the story? Who's the protagonist? Who's the one who's for the good? It's not Jonah. He's fighting against the good all the way. It's not the sailors. It's not the Ninevites. Definitely not the whale. The one who is for the good in the story is God. God is running after anyone who will have him. And he's holding out and offering grace and mercy and life. You know, a few weeks ago, Adrian, uh, in a talk on mercy in our series in the Beatitudes, uh, unpacked the story of the prodigal son. And there were loads of similarities and between that story and this one, that Jonah is both sons in this story. The two um, halves of this story, the first half where Jonah goes the wrong way and the second half where he goes the right way but he still ends up kind of going the wrong way as well, kind of parallel both of the sons in Jesus' parable. That Jonah is the one who, who runs away from home, who eventually has a, a revelation and returns to what he's been called to, like the younger son. And in the second he obeys, he follows God's word, but he's still left bitter and angry and outside of the act of lavish grace that 
he was invited to join in and be a part of. He's left outside of the party of what God is wanting to do in the world. And the invitation for us is to come and join that party. Because when we hold the whole story together, we get the point of why it's been written in this way. We see why it is that everything has been exaggerated. The city, enormous. The storm, huge. The fish, giant. The enemies, as evil as they can be. Jonah, as weak and useless as you could possibly imagine someone. Why? Because it's all pointing us to the supersized, the exaggerated, the enormous lavishness of God's grace and his mercy. That no matter how big everything is in this story, even that, we take everything we know to the extreme, God's mercy is still bigger even than that. It's still bigger. It's bigger individually for Jonah, time and time again, he runs after him. It's bigger for the Ninevites, collectively, their whole city, their community, God is big enough for them. My final question, where else do we see this story? This series is showing us, I think, something of the scope of the Bible, but it's all leading us to one place. It's leading us to Jesus. Jesus, the one who is the word of God, who doesn't just receive the word of God, the one who is the true dove, truly innocent, son of faithfulness, righteous, holy, pure, always following his father's will, who doesn't flee. The one who has all authority over land and sea, but steps into an instrument of death on the cross in order to make it a vehicle of life. The one who does everything he does, not selfishly as a way of escaping, but selflessly in order that an invitation would go out for everyone to come and receive. And at the end, we see one cut off in order that we might be included in. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. Why? Why did Jesus suffer outside? Was he, was he like Jonah, sat on a hill, consumed with anger? No, he goes outside the city, not to stew, but to save. He goes outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Let's join in with his resurrection life. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. God has begun his act of new creation in the midst of the old. And we're invited to join in with what he's doing. We're invited to the party of God's grace that is wider and higher and deeper and longer than we could possibly imagine. It's the final mirror moment for us. That this God, the God of Jonah, he is for you. He is running after you in the same way. He is pursuing you fiercely today. This God of boundless, extravagant goodness and grace, the God who brings comfort 
even in dark places. He doesn't always give easy answers, but always gives himself. And the invitation we have to come to Jesus, to not be like Jonah, to not let ourselves sit on the outside, looking in at what God is doing in the world, but to come and join in with what God is doing, with what God is saying. That's the invitation for you today. It's the invitation if you don't know God today. It's the invitation if if you do know him to come and receive again of his boundless goodness and grace and mercy. Maybe you think you've received it in the past and then you messed up again. Can you bear to come back to him? Oh, yes. He is so good. His mercy is new again every morning. Will you receive it today? We're going to respond in just a moment by singing another song. Um, Andy's going to lead us in it. It might be one that's kind of new to some of you. And so I'd invite you, as Andy comes up and, and plays, just take this as a moment. You might want to stand and sing if, if you want to, if you know it, or if you can kind of pick it up. At the same time, you might just want to respond in yourself. You might want to sit or kneel or stand. But I just invite you, reflect again on all the aspects of this story, all of the mirror moments we've seen so far. Come to this Jesus again. Receive this God of goodness and grace and love and mercy because he is for you. He is for you. Why don't I pray? Lord, I thank you for this amazing story. I pray that these deep truths, these deep questions that it asks us would go deep into our hearts, would go deep into our souls, that you would meet us deeply now. In this moment, you would come to us You would draw us close. You would help us to see that the wideness of your goodness and your grace is for us. It's for us. We're invited in even now, in this moment. Amen. Thank you.